0: Yeah, coming back to Hobart was great, but it was, it was eerie. It was, you know, it, it was just like a ghost town. Having no life in, in these amazing hotels that are usually full of people and it was so bleak. But so I thought, I thought we'd, I don't know, maybe we'd be closed by this time this year. So we're still here and we're busy and I mean, we're, we're very grateful for it.
1: This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. For many of us, our chosen vocation is not the one we intended. In fact, most people really have no idea where their future lies and instead wait to let the cards fall before taking the plunge. Life in the hospitality industry is not about the final destination, but the journey that helps form our ideals along the way. Jeff Workman is the head chef of Peacock and Jones in Hobart, Tasmania. Jeff, how are you going?
0: Yeah, good. Thanks, Huck. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thanks for joining us. You uh, didn't intend on becoming a chef. In fact, um, far from it originally. Um, but what, what led you to take uh, the, the leap and do an apprenticeship?
0: I had absolutely no interest in cooking. Um, <laughs> I was going to do a a carpentry apprenticeship. I did a lot of different odd jobs, um, just around sort of handyman work, uh, working in factories, working out at Ingleburn on loading trucks. Um, and I guess what sort of turned me onto it was a guy that lived down the road from me. He was a chef and he just said, look, there's a, an apprenticeship going down the road at, at the sports club. Um, why don't you have a crack? And at the time there was a show called, I think it was My Restaurant Rules and it gave you a lot of insight to what was happening in in the back of the house, in the kitchen. Um, and I just thought, oh, look, I can I can peel potatoes, I can peel onions. Why not have a go? So literally would just get on my skateboard, skate down the road, rocked up, asked for a job, and I just got the typical, like, look, there's a hard career, uh, the hours are long, uh, you know, it, it's going to be tough. Are you gonna are you sure you wanna commit to it? And I was like, yeah, why not? Um I've tried so many other things. If I don't give a, this a good crack, um I don't I really don't know what else I'm gonna do. So I actually did three weeks there straight. Uh chased up my overtime and I didn't realise that, you know, underpayment and all that type of thing was was a like, you know, it was a bit bit of a part of the the career. So that sort of came back at me, and I said, "Well, you know, I'll go to Fair Work and got into this big argument with the owner." And I just said, "You know what? I'm, I'm not, I'm not doing this." Um, he handed over reluctantly a envelope full of cash, and then I ended up uh, getting a job in a cafe in a it's actually in a, a shopping centre, and that was you know I really enjoyed that because it's just. You just had some really cool people working there. It was pretty, it was fairly lighthearted, pretty fun stuff. Um, Not like a strict disciplined kitchen. Ended up doing a year there and they're like, look, why don't you at least just try one restaurant, you know, uh, fine dining or something in the city. And I was so naive back then, you know, I had no idea about restaurants I didn't know anything about fine dining or modern Australian cooking. So I just walked around the city, just handing in resumes to hotels anywhere and got nothing back. I got actually got a job trial at a, a little French restaurant uh, that was owned by this really old Japanese guy. Um, did my trial and I just, I felt like I couldn't communicate very well with them. So I said, look, I've, it's not, I don't think this is going to work out. Um, and then I ended up getting a job offer for GPO at number one, Martin Place, which uh, is we, still there. Um, and it had two had restaurants, another restaurant, uh, Mario Poccioco's restaurant at the time, Intermezzo, son of Armando Poccioco. Uh And they had a few different food outlets. And so I got moved around through them um, and that was a good experience. And I think that sort of, Was the beginning of a a career in sort of like a a more corporate style world of of being a chef. You know, so that was uh, a big um, big operation. Uh, Ended up going into Prime and Post, so they were two separate restaurants, but it was under one kitchen. Um, I don't know how they made it work, but it was it was that was busy. You know, you you do booked lunch, dinner, cooking for two different restaurants. So I think one restaurant was 90 covers, the other one was 60. Um, yeah, and that was a predominantly a, a Japanese kitchen. So the head chef the Japanese, sous chef, Japanese. Uh, it was very strict, very disciplined. And I'd be honest, I sucked, like I, I, I hated it. I would walk to the door and just be like, what am I gonna get in trouble for today? Um, but I tr- just kept trying. Um, And it opened up a world of things like, you know, how amazing Japanese knives are, how much pride they take in things like technique and skill. Um, Ended up doing a year there and I went to work at Glass and that was crazy, you know, that was, the services were massive, even bigger than what I was doing previously. And they, there were just these loud, you know, exciting services. You're doing 200 for lunch, 300 for dinner, you're just this one unit moving forward, pushing food out at a, you know, hat level. Um, I think we looked in the guide and it was the biggest one hat restaurant of the, at the time. Um, and, you know, a lot of that came from the head chef, Joe, who had a really strong work ethic. He was there eight o'clock in the morning till finish every single day. Every single day was on. He was always there while we were all sort of doing a couple of split shifts, but mostly singles. And, you know, he would just be there driving driving the team forward.
1: Well, he's a bit of an unsung hero in the industry. What was it like working under him and also Luke Mangan, who um, obviously is a big part of Glass Bar, oh, yeah. doing his Massive. restaurant?
0: Um, oh, Joe was, a, Joe was a hard-ass man. Like, he was a big <laughs> Croatian dude. Um, I copped a few bollockings, that's for sure. Fought a lot of tears back at times. Um, but, you know, the I think the really important thing there was – You got moved from section to section it didn't matter if you were ready or not for it you would just sort of be put onto the next section and you would develop how to how to sort of hold your own ground how to cook really well Um, and I think that was the most important thing I learned there was just how to sort of stand strong in a service and become of a team become a part of a team that was You know, I was on the Friday night service, the Saturday night service, and sort of thinking back, it's like, well, those were the nights where you needed your stronger team. So it it feels nice to sort of be a part of that. Um, And, again, it's, you know, being sort of exposed to that hotel restaurant, a celebrity chef, um, I think that was all, uh, yeah, without meaning to, it sort of developed my career into as I said before, um, sort of bigger operations and and hotels and stuff. Was, yeah, sort of opened my eyes up to that type of stuff.
1: After that period of time working in those um, hatted restaurants, and um, you 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 left uh, Sydney and you headed north. Um, tell us about that decision and 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 the experience you had.
0: So I was working in a little little restaurant at the time. Um, sort of left the city. Just wanted to break from it. And just a mate of mine, he called me up one day and he's like, would you be interested to, you know, come and help me out um, on an a res- island resort? And I pretty much said no straight away. It's like, why would I want to do that? And it was about 20 minutes later. I was like, you know what, fuck it. Why, <laughs> why am I holding myself back? You know, so many chefs move out and go overseas. You know, this could be the you know, uh, right direction to sort of start doing that. And so I, I resigned at my job and probably three months later was plonked on Daydream Island um, north of of Brisbane, 40 degrees, wet season, stinking hot, um, really uncomfortable. And it was, yeah, look, again, another big operation, um, but it was tough, you know, for the amount of work you put in. Yeah, the, the food wasn't amazing. Uh, we went through what, five executive chefs in the two years I was there. So that was um, that was a massive learning curve in terms of just you know, being a part of a remote area as well, which sort of leads you into you know, working like that. So from there going on to, yeah, coming down to Tassie.
1: Well, tell us a bit about what you were cooking on Daydream Island. You said it wasn't the best and you had so many executive chefs, but back then, what were you cooking?
0: oh it was my first night there was you know they had things like fish i'd never heard of so red throat emperor spangled emperor i was on the hot section and i'm just looking at all these different species going i'm I'm lost now i don't even know what i'm what fish i'm meant to be cooking so like they, they also had a, a fisherman for the for the island, and he would just bring in all this amazing fish, and we would take what we needed, scaled it, gutted it, portioned it, and sadly, a lot of it would just end up sitting in the fridge because I just feel like the poor management, you know, just, a lot of those things just got didn't get taken care of. So in terms of the food, it was it was just really basic stuff, and um, a lot of surprises on the way. There was I got into work one day, and they're like oh, uh, there's a breakfast basket on, like, I didn't even know we do breakfast. Yeah, you do breakfast, you do lunch and you do dinner and tapas and pizzas. And, and it's just like that. The list was never ending. So it was just a, a massive crowd pleaser. Um, you know, you had two outlets. One could seat 200 covers, the other one 300, and you'd have 600 people on the island. So, you know, that, the numbers didn't really add up. <laughs>
1: Well, as you just briefly mentioned, you, you made the journey to Tasmania. What, what what triggered that? Because Tasmania is really where you've made a name for yourself.
0: Um, well, I, I was just talking to a guy on Daydream and he said, oh, I'm moving to Tassie. And I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, never considered moving there. I'd always look at it on the weather report and just cold. But I like <laughs> the cold weather and spoke to my wife who I'd met on the island um, and we're like, oh, you know, we could either go two ways. We could go do something like work in the mines and try and make some serious cash or, you know, we can go and see what Tasmania's about, maybe do a few months there and, and just move around. Um, and so I looked online and Sapphire came up uh, and I noticed that Hugh Whitehouse was executive chef. I um, And I remembered him from when I was an apprentice. He had two hats at Dali's uh regional restaurant of the year two years in a row so i was just like we got to go there um applied for a job they got back to us straight away offered us a six-month contract uh and the funny thing about that is you know they they had this incentive if you stick out your six months you get a thousand (laughs) dollars and then so that was like a real good goal so we're like yep let's do it um but no look ended up being there for three years uh we got offered to stay on, we got really looked after, well looked after there. Um, it was probably my, I reckon it was my favourite job. It was a lot of self-development. You were doing things like cooking classes, um, in-room dining, so you'd cook for some guests if they if they liked. Um, a lot of engagement, and that's what the place is about, um, sort of tailoring to, to the guests' needs requirements. Um, the staff ratio was... Yeah, the amount of staff was outweighed to the the actual guests staying there, so it was it was really impressive, impressive little boutique hotel.
1: You briefly touched on uh, Hugh Whitehouse. Um, what sort of impact did he have on on your career? And has there been other chefs to really uh, make a make a mark on who you are?
0: Yeah, so Hugh, um, look, he really encouraged me to. To do what I'm doing now, uh, Simon, who was sous chef at the time, um, I really enjoyed working with him. Um, you know, he sort of would always have the saying, "You can do it however you, you can cook however you want, as long as we get the same result." I don't mind. So there was always a bit of freedom around him that I felt really comfortable around. Um, as for Hugh, he was a, just a pain in the ass and <laughs> just you know, gave you a hard time, but, you know, he was tough but fair. Um, in terms of other chefs, I did a year at um, the Observatory Hotel at Galileo, and that was under Masahiko Yamoda, so Chef Yomo. Um, he had just sort of taken over Galileo after Haru had left. And, he, you know, I, I, at that time I was looking for another job, sort of wanted to work somewhere like Key or Rockpool. And then a mate of mine was there as well. And he's like, oh, you know, you're on a break for two weeks. Do you mind coming in, helping us out? We don't have enough chefs. So I said, yeah, sure. Went and helped out and just loved it. I loved that, you know, just had a sense of pride from the recipes were written in French. the, The dockets were called in French. All the chefs were so disciplined. They were all about your technique, improving your skill. Um, it, you know, it wasn't about the money. It was just about sort of being the best you can be. Um, and I remember sort of one conversation I had with Yomo one night. You know, probably drunk in the back of a taxi. He just turned to me and said, "You know, being a chef isn't. A, it's not a shit job. Like, it's a profession. Um, you you need skill. You need management. You need artistic flair so don't think it's a shit job you know you need to you can take this seriously you need to be a gentleman in the kitchen like I don't like it when people swear in the kitchen I don't like yelling I like it when it's calm and everyone's in control so that really opened my eyes up because you know before that a lot of chefs were either they'd been previously been kitchen hands that have worked their way up into the kitchen or even a lot of high school dropouts sort of just falling into a a chef job so that made a real impact on me on how, I suppose, you know, I wanted to progress and just, I, I don't know, I guess be, be more of a manager than, you know, a section chef or whatever.
1: Let's talk about uh, Peacock and Jones. You, um, you're involved from the beginning with that. Um, what, what was it like uh, at the beginning creating um, your food, and also, um, you know, the first sort of head chef role for you?
0: Yeah, so, look, it was tough because you've got so many other people giving you their opinion and their vision on something. Originally it was meant to be a wine tapas bar, then a French, uh, French bistro, um, and, you know, just being told to sort of put a curry on, cook this, cook that, I just started to ignore it. And just started to sort of try and develop my own style and just cook the way I wanted and, you know, use flavours that I wanted. Uh, As for being my first head chef role, it it was kind of tough because you don't really know, you don't understand the way the seasons work in Tasmania. So that was a huge learning curve. Um, you know, I was out one night with a mate, and he's like, "Oh, you know, what are you doing with your tomatoes at the moment?" I said, "Well, oh, I haven't got them on the menu." It's so like you're, you're three weeks late, and that you know, the the penny drop was like, "Oh, you gotta you gotta be on the ball down here." You know, they 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 do things their way according to season. Um, so you you just got to know where you're at, know what's available even be, you know, two seasons ahead. So you, you, you're on top of your menu. Um, as for the food, we just cook fairly simply, try to look after the produce uh, as best we can, care for it as best we can. Um, we've got some amazing producers down here from, you know, Mimosa Park pork, um, filled duck, a lot of awesome veg growers. So that sort of dictates how you cook. I think everyone really looks forward to summer. But, you know, you just got vibrant plates of food, really abundant. Um, winter gets it does get tough, um but you got to just got got to get creative with cabbage and kale and stuff like that. But you know, what you get beautiful pumpkin and squash. um We've got a new supplier at the moment, uh, Early Bird Market Farm. They've got these amazing carrots and beetroots So there's kind of always stuff. Floating around, but um, it does. It it gets to the pointy end, and you know you really do look towards summer for for a lot of inspiration when when it comes around.
1: Tell us about the you know uh, the connection with farmers and how long it took you um, to get that in order, and how vital is it to what you do right now?
0: That was that was a little bit harder than I thought because they're so small that they only supply or they can only supply a certain amount of restaurants. Um, but sort of, I, I guess, as we developed a bit of a, a reputation, um, you know, we had a lot of, a lot of suppliers coming to us. We were approached by Mimosa park, um, really were, we're on board with, um, and uh, a really good veg supplier, uh, Longley Organic Farm, who's he's slowed down a bit, but you know we got a lot, used to get a lot of stuff from him. We use Lindel Lindel lamb. Uh, we pretty much clean out the butcher every week because it's just so busy, you know. And again, that just says that they're a small supplier. Um, and we just, you know, it's like a free reign. Whatever uh, whatever you've got, send it towards it. Send it to us if you've got lamb saddles. We'll take them rumps anything you know we're not a big restaurant we're not a big kitchen we don't have a lot of storage space so we'd love to get the the whole beast in but you know uh, I guess this is the next best thing to that.
1: Can you give us a sense of um, where you're at with your cooking and, and what your cooking style is is there a dish or two that you can um, talk us through that exemplifies your style of cooker?
0: Sure I guess you know care for the product uh, with the ducks that we've been getting we get them in once a week we break them down we age them for minimum seven weeks get them nice and dry you know the du- the legs can go into duck confit or or even we'll do a petivier with them so we're trying to use everything uh we are given it a lot of care and you know a, a lot of cooking on the bone so we cook the ducks on the crown we cook you know, the pork chop. Um, in terms of dishes, I, I really like cooking cooking the duck. Um, we'll, you know, we can do it with duck heart. We'll make a sauce out of the livers. And as I said, you know, fairly simply, we'll just put them with some vegetables or fruit um, or preserves and just kind of leave the plate nice and clean. As long as everything's cooked perfectly, seasoned well, um, sort of that's all I really want to do because we've got, you know, we're in a hotel we're essentially a hotel restaurant. we've got to keep it fairly approachable. There might be people that are just down for a night in the hotel and they just want a simple meal um, so we'll, you know we don't want them to feel like they can't come down and have have something to eat and then just go back and rest um, but on the other hand, we can you know we can do a tasting menu if if people like and they can have a bit of a dining experience um so, yeah, that's probably where we're at. A lot of sort of old French technique, I think. That, that was a lot of my training. Um, and I think at that time in Sydney, you know, you had the best restaurants, places like Bicasse, Assiette. Um, it was almost like Sydney was French at the time. So that w- that's where a lot of my influence on the cooking comes from.
1: The food offering in Tasmania has changed exponentially in the last five, 10 years. What's exciting you about the Hobart and Tasmanian food scene at the moment?
0: I think it's actually been really admirable to see a lot of restaurants not shut from COVID. I think they've been really brave and changed their the way they're running their business, whether it's less days which is great it gives the chefs um you know time off they're not feeling the pressures of of having to be open all the time and it means a lot of the restaurants are booked out now if you don't come down you know a month you know booking a month in advance you you're going to get stuck um there's wait lists you know our, our weekends are wait lists i know there's you know some of the better restaurants in Hobart. Uh, you, you can't get in months out, so you you might as well be planning for next year. Um, I think in terms of being what's exciting, I actually feel like Launceston is pretty exciting. There's some awesome restaurants up there and kind of go under the radar, but there's some really good cooking on up there. Some you know chef-owned little restaurants up there that are d- just cooking amazing dishes. It's like you yeah, know, Hobart sort of steals the spotlight from them a lot. But, yeah, I think, you know, they're, they're on par, if not better sometimes in what, what's happening here. So I think around the state, you know, you can find these great little restaurants. So the, I think the whole state can be – it's all moving forward and it's, it's really exciting to see.
1: Now, you haven't been at Peacock and Jones for this whole period of time that it's been open. You, uh, An opportunity came up in Binlong Bay. Can you tell us about that?
0: Yeah, so, you know, we – got approached to open or start up a restaurant that was going to cook over fire. So there was going to be a, we had a wood grill put in, there was an existing wood oven. Um, and it was just trying to sort of get in with a local fisherman and just, again, cook really simply, but you know, with a, with beautiful flavor from the flame. Um, and that was a tough one because you're in such a remote area, you're in a really small Sort of res- residential area where people have lived there, you know their whole lives and they sort of have an expectation and you don't you know you're outside of that expectation so you get questions like where are the palmies where are the burgers fair enough you know a lot of them were, were pensioners so i think it just didn't really work um yeah a lot of the tourists enjoy it enjoyed it but where you know, COVID crept in, um, you could really sense something was changing because we really started to slow down a lot after the, the summer holidays and it just didn't feel right and you're just watching the news and you're like, oh, you know, it's happening over there. It's not going to affect us. It'll get contained and all of a sudden, you know, you're just in a world of hurt. No one knows what they're doing. Um, so that, you know, the owners had to sort of change it up, the business model. Um, and sort of be become a lot more fam, family friendly with the menu and we we were already sort of working into that, which took away what we wanted to do originally, which you know would have been really nice to be a, a bit of a destination sort of dining spot um, and then my wife fell pregnant, and it became a bit of a complicated pregnancy so during COVID, she was having to drive back and forth to Launceston by herself because, you know, she's, I wasn't allowed to go with her in the hospital. And one day she was just like, I, I, I can't be doing this. I need support. And I was feeling the same way. So, we look, we just decided, you know, we'll move back to Hobart. Um, and I was always getting messages from my exec chef jokingly getting me back to work here and... You know, all of a sudden, I'm asking if, it, if it's been done. So, and yeah, that we worked on that, and yeah, coming back to Hobart was great, but it was it was eerie. It was, you know, it, it was just like a ghost town. Coming into work to have discussions with the general manager, having no life in in these amazing hotels that are usually full with people, and you know, the full restaurants, are full bars. Um, yeah, it was it was just it was so bleak. And we, we didn't know what we were sort of going in for. I thought I thought we'd I don't know, maybe we'd be closed by this time this year. So uh, look, we're still here and we're busy and I mean we're we're very grateful for it.
1: How much has changed you in this time given the experiences that you've had over the last year and a half and has it changed your cooking and the offering as well?
0: It's changed me you know, I've had had two children since that's changed me a lot. I'm a lot more tired, (laughs) Um, (laughs) a lot more tired. Um, but I think it's definitely made me a lot more patient, um, rather than just, you know, don't lose your temper, just roll your eyes. Um, you know, we've all been through a whole world of shit. So, you know, worse things can happen than someone overcooking something or something not being, being, being done properly. Um, you know, and also cooking, it's, again, just simplifying things. Um, don't take it too seriously because we can all go through all that again and it all gets taken away. And, you know what, all the press, all the reputation, all that it can get taken away from you so easily. And what I think a lot of us found was a lot of that didn't really matter. You know, we the brutal truth was... You got to be happy you got to be you got to be enjoying what you're doing you got to be you know making your guests happy um and uh, yeah uh, that's really changed the way i'm thinking it's just go to work enjoy it um and make changes at work that are going to make people happy at work um yeah i think it's been mostly positive
1: for someone who had no interest in food or cooking when they were young you've made a hell of a career out of it um, what is it that you love about uh, restaurants and, and cooking?
0: I love the teamwork. Um, I love feeling like it's, you know, a part of playing you know, a sport almost. You know, you, as the head chef, you're the captain. Every night you you have to perform. You have to lead everyone to yeah, almost a victory, almost a win against these dockets that are coming at you Um complaints, you know, you've got to really stand hard and lead by example. Um, that, that's what I really enjoy about it. It's like just, yeah, being part of the team and also working with your hands, um, creating, um, just I think a lot of pleasure comes from just making things and, you know, when you're even just simply making a, a staff meal, whether it's, you know, a, a beef braise or whatever, it's like you've made this delicious dish and you're sharing it with people um i think there's a lot of enjoyment that comes from that also even just interacting with the guest a lot of guest engagement taking food out talking with them when they you know walk past the pass and they want to have a little chat and you know it's all it's all positive i mean that's that's where the that's where a lot of the the satisfaction comes from it's not it's not who's the best it's not who's number one it's like you know, you did a good job in the night. You've made someone happy. They've come in, and you've and you've blown out, blown their expectations away. Um, and they come back, um, and it even leads into the front of house. It's like teaching them, encouraging them, watching them develop, watching them get excited about putting the, the plates of food down. Yeah, I love hearing them explain the dishes with so much passion. And these, some of these people have never even worked in food. They're not interested in food and, and they just develop this this passion for it. So it's like, you know, when you see that, that's, yeah, you, you feel really good about it.
1: You've had um, some pretty big changes in your life over the last year and a half or so with new family members, um, change of restaurants back to where you um, were cooking before that. Well, What's what, what are you looking forward to, and and what's your goals sort of in the next couple of years?
0: Um, <clears throat> I guess I'd love to work on sort of more time with uh, the family. <clears throat> you know, you're stuck at work all day and you you miss out on a lot. And I was having a conversation uh, with a mate that came down not too long ago, and he he used to be a chef and he's he's got two kids, and he just he said to me, look it's you know it's okay now when when they're not at school when they're really young they don't notice, but you know when when they're going to school and they and you're working on the weekends that's when it becomes hard um and he he just took this change um, in job career he, he he's just working at a at a mushroom farm working three in the morning till midday and he's like it's it's great, I get to pick my kids up every single day and I get to be with them on the weekends so I think some more of a balance with family life is important. Um I look forward to teaching them. I don't want them to be chefs. I don't, you know, I, <laughs> uh, I won't encourage it, but if they want to, then for sure go for it. And yeah, you know, I'd love to sort of pass on a lot of knowledge and do things at home with them in that way. But um I guess, you know, I think that's more the most important thing is just watching them grow and all this, you know, restaurant stuff, uh, you can put it behind you and and just, yeah, just to be able to put it behind you and, and spend more time with your family is is definitely a goal for me. Um, more sustainable living, more healthy living, um, growing more veggies at home, getting the kids interested in vegetables, in eating, you know, more nutrient-dense food, um... Yeah, I think that's the most important thing to me is, is just being there for the kids, I think.
1: Well, I think that's a, a wonderful uh, sentiment and a great thing to focus on. Um, we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today, Jeff, to hear your story. And uh, and I loved the meal that I had at Peacock and Jones when I was in Tasmania. It feels like so long ago. Um, <laughs> please keep in touch and um, we'll no doubt catch up again soon.
0: Thanks, Huck. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it.
1: This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospital community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in podcast, or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.